Our reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 and 10 through 17. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. On their return, the apostles told them all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're going to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Uh, One of my favorite scenes in the Narnia stories, which many of you are probably familiar with, is in the book The Silver Chair. A girl named Jill, who is from our world, has stumbled into Narnia. She's extremely thirsty. She comes upon a stream, but there's a problem, because standing there at the stream is a lion, Aslan, almost as if he's guarding the water, and she's terrified. The lion tells her, if you're thirsty, you may drink, Uh, but then she begins to hesitate, and I want to quote from, from the book for just a minute. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, she asked. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat, little girls? she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting or if it were were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, she thought, coming another step Nearer, I I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. 
There is no other stream, he said. It was the worst thing, this is what Lewis says, it was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched her thirst at once. Before she had tasted it, she had been intending to make a mad dash away from the lion the moment she had finished, but now she realized that this would be on the whole the most dangerous thing of all. It's a great story. And it really, in many ways, sums up what Luke is trying to do here as we kind of finish up in these next few weeks. From chapters 7, 8, and 9 in his gospel, his, Jesus' ministry in the north in Galilee, the gospel of Luke is an evangelistic appeal. He's writing, this is what he's doing for his patron, the most excellent Theophilus in chapter 1, verse 4. That all of this material, the stories of Jesus' miracles here at the beginning of the, his ministry in the north in Galilee, Luke has compiled all of this to make this point to the man he's writing this gospel to and to all of us who read it even today, as if to say, there is no other stream. And so that's what I want to do this morning, something a little different. I want to really talk to, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or you're investigating Christianity, or if you're here and you're a teenager and you're trying to figure out what Jesus is going to mean to you in your life, I want to talk to you this morning. But see, the, core, the same issue that you have to deal with in coming to Christ uh, is, the, is really the, the, the very same thing of growing your relationship with him, so don't think you're off the hook if you're not in one of those categories, Okay? So if, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, but out of fear of losing control or, or whatever the case may be, you're tempted to, you've kind of seen and you realize this is kind of scary and you're, you're tempted to kind of run away and say, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with that, I want to say to you, if you do so, you will die of thirst because he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one else. You have to deal with him. You have to make sense of him, you have to listen to him and obey. I mean, I'll shoot you straight. I'll absolutely shoot you straight. It is dangerous to come to him, but it's even more dangerous to walk away. And to go look for another stream, to try to find happiness apart from him, because there is no such thing. I love this passage that we read from John's Gospel in John 6. Uh, after Jesus says some startling things about this meal that we'll partake of together in just a few minutes, many of those that were following him said, you know what, that's it, I'm out. I'm off the train, this has gone too far, I'm done. And they walk away, and Jesus seeing them leave, uh, and I understand from a pastor's heart, as people begin to leave his group, he turns to his disciples, the 12, and he says, are you going to go away too? And I love Peter, I love, this is one of Peter's shining moments. He says it so perfectly, he says, Lord, to whom are we going to go? Where are we going to go? I mean, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's no other stream, Peter says. And it captures so well the dilemma that all of us who set out to believe in Jesus and follow him must face. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. And I've not met very many other people that want to do that. It doesn't sound very pleasant, and so I'm out of here. And yet, yet to whom shall I go? There's no other stream. So here I am, shaking with fear, but dying of thirst for the water that only you can give, and that's the cry of faith, right? Here I am, shaking with fear, but dying of thirst for the water that only you can give. I'm scared to death, but I've got nowhere else to go. That's the cry of a person who's begun to really make sense of what Jesus uh, means to be for them and to do in their life. And so I want you to see three things from this passage in, in Luke chapter 9 this morning. 
if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to know these three things. You have to know, first, that he's not tame. You have to know, secondly, that he's not terrifying. And then lastly, that's what makes him. The fact that he's not tame, but he's not terrifying is what makes him trustworthy, and so you can give him your life. And look, we got alliteration again this morning, so expect awesomeness. I mean, it's just, there it is, right? Three points, all with the same letter. It's going to be awesome. He is not tame. He is not trustworthy. I mean, he is trustworthy. Excuse me. He is not, see, I'm getting confused. He is not tame. He is not terrifying, and that makes him trustworthy. So let's just start uh, with this first point, that he is not tame. See, if you're investigating Christianity or you want to grow in your faith, the first thing you have to know is that Jesus is not tame. There's a certain amount of fear. In other words, it's appropriate to coming to him. If you don't experience it, you've not encountered the real Jesus. The girl in the story, Jill, why? why? She's dying of thirst. Why would she walk away from the rippling stream, the delicious rippling noise of the stream? It's because she was afraid. There was a lion there. Who wouldn't be afraid of a lion? Do you promise not to do anything to me if I come, she says. I make no promises. Do you eat little girls? I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Well, that's not safe. Historians tell us that the Roman Catholic Church began to worship and revere Mary and pray to her even because the medieval portrait of God was so dark and punishing and menacing the people needed a sweet, understanding mother to turn to and to hide behind and to intervene for them because they didn't want to deal directly with God. And I, it's a Protestant impulse as well that often we imagine Jesus as the, the opposite end of the spectrum of God the Father, this dark, angry, mean God of the Old Testament of wrath and fire and genocide. And then there's Jesus carrying a lamb in his shoulder, you know, in his arms with a perfectly trimmed beard, and it's just all so sweet. And Dorothy Sayers uh, put it this way. She said, the people who hanged Christ never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We, she says, have very, very efficiently pared down the claws of the line of the tribe of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting house pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Mark Buchanan, in a book that I really, I really enjoyed, a great little book called Your God is Too Safe, he tells a story of a funeral he did once. And the lady who died was uh, a faithful Christian in his church, but most of the family, uh, that, you know, most of her family did not share her faith. And so he was wrestling. He wanted to present the gospel at her funeral, but was afraid because he didn't want to offend the rest of the family with the claims of Christianity. And it's a real thing for pastors, I and mean, we deal with that all the time. And so, despite his nerves, despite his nerves, he, he, he mustered up the, the strength and the courage to preach sin and hell and Jesus. And then after one of the family members came up to him and, and shook him, the family member said, thank you, that was so nice what you said. It was really nice. She said, I'm religious too, and the family always asks me to pray for the weather when we go golfing. And he said... He said that you know, it really shook him up. It just really kind of perplexed him. And he went on to write in this book, and he said it really well. He says, the idol of the nice God, a safe God, has done more damage to biblical faith, more damage to people coming to faith than the caricature of the tyrant God ever did. The despotic God howling his rage, wielding his punishment, at least that God inspired something in us. We were afraid. We wanted to appease but this milk toast pampering deity is nothing but a cosmic lackey, 
an errand boy we call on to make our golf games pleasant or to try to help us escape reality for a little while and then summarily dismiss. This safe God has no power to console us in our grief or to shake us from our complacency or to rescue us from the pit. He just putters in his garden, smiles benignly, waves now and then, and mostly spends a lot of time in his room doing puzzles. It's as if, it's as though God were a half-daft old uncle, hair sprouting from his ears a bit, running about the eyes, winking at our little pranks and picadillos. Well, that's nice. Now he goes on to say, but no, God isn't nice. God isn't safe. Though he cares about the sparrow, the embodiment of his care is rarely doing, rarely doting or pampering. God's main business is ensuring that you and I get, excuse me, his main business is not ensuring that you and I get parking spaces close to the mall entrance or that the bed sheets in the color we want, miracle, are on sale this week, right? His main business is making you and me holy and setting us on mission. And that, see, the Jesus that walks across the pages of Luke's gospel is not safe. He doesn't fit into our carefully constructed theological systems. He doesn't cater to people. He doesn't bow under the pressure or break under the weight of the expectations of other people, even his mother and his brothers. He has the power to walk on water and the authority to speak to demons and cast them out of people. And the response, if you look in chapters, I'm really kind of, even though we're looking at this text, I'm really kind of summarizing all of 7, 8, and 9 here in Luke's Gospel. And if you look over and over again in the stories that, that Luke tells, the overwhelming response from the people who got near to him was to fall on their face and be absolutely afraid. And rightly so, because we don't own him, he owns us. And we don't command him, he commands us. And, and we aren't in control, he is. And if the goal of your life is to keep control of your life, then you really, you really should. Can I just make a suggestion? Walk away. But even that won't work. And if you do, you'll die of thirst. And that's the dilemma, isn't it? We can't live him, with him. We can't live without him. Can't live with him. We can't live without him. He's not safe, but he's what we need. He's the bread of life. He's the living water that if we eat and drink, we will never hunger or thirst again. There's no other bread that can fill us. There's no other water that can satisfy. And so even though he is not safe, even though he is not tame, we have no choice but to come to him and look and see here what he does to those who do. And we need to count the cost, don't we? If you look here in the, the first verses of this chapter, 9, verses 1 through 6, just four things that you see Jesus do that really become uh, the way that he deals not only with his 12 here, but the way that he deals with all of us. And so if you put your faith in him and you put your life in his hands, here are some of the things that he's going to do. He will put you into motion. He will force you out on mission. Look, he called the 12 together, verses 1 and 2, gave them power and authority, and he sent them out. And so, settled, stagnant, predictable, same old, same old, these are not words that describe life with Jesus. He will put you into motion. He will force you out on mission. Secondly, he will force you to do hard things. He will constantly love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? All these things we've been talking about for the last few weeks that he will ask you to do Hard things. Third, he'll force you to trust him by making you weak. Look what he does here in verse 3. Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. That's just not smart. No father would send their child off to, uh, to college and say, you know what, don't take a bag. You don't need money. So why? 
Why does he send them with these instructions? So that in their need, they would learn trust. Amen. Right? So he'll put you in motion. He'll force you out on mission. He'll, he'll force you to do hard things. I'm using this word force. He will force you to trust him by making you weak. And lastly, he will force you to face your fear of man. Look at verse 5. Whatever, whatever, wherever, they, uh, wherever they do not receive you. Right? Wherever they do not receive you, he says, then do like Taylor Swift and shake it off. You see that? <laughs> That's bad. I know. I thought it was cheeky. Shake it off. Fear of God and fear of man are incompatible. You can't live with both. And so obedience always puts you on a collision course with the fear of man when you have to confront people, when you have to speak the truth and these sorts of things. So I know a lot of you making decisions in your life. If you want to know, you know what the will of God is and the general trajectory that, that, that Jesus usually takes his people on, if you're trying to make a hard decision, go through that. What puts me into motion? What's the thing that forces me to do hard things? What's, what's, what is it that for, forces me to most trust him and that makes me weak? And, and what is it that most forces me to face my fear of man? You can be pretty confident that's the direction God's leading you. It's because it's what he does. And it's scary. So the first person I'm speaking to this morning is the one who's had an experience with Jesus, but it's just too much. It's too radical. And so for fear of losing control of their life or for fear of just being miserable or whatever the case may be, they turn to a God, whether inside Christianity or outside, a God who's safe, who doesn't make any demands. And they seek to worship the God of their own imagination instead of the God of the Bible. But then there's the person, secondly, the second point, who is able to, uh, to work through some of that initial fear. Like the little girl Jill in C.S. Lewis's story, who keeps inching their forward towards the stream. This person keeps inching their way forward until they're drinking, but they never get over their fear. They never get past it. They just go on being terrified of God. You see, in the story... The girl is scared to death of Aslan at first. She tends to drink, we're told, and then she's getting out of there as fast as she possibly can. But she doesn't go on being afraid. It's my favorite part. You remember how C.S. Lewis puts it? He says, it's so good. He says, before she drank, she had intended on making a mad dash away from the lion as soon as she had finished. But now she realized that this would be on the whole the most dangerous thing of all. Before she drank, being near the lion was the most terrifying thing she could imagine. But after being... Near him was not nearly as terrifying as the thought of being without him. And that's the language of conversion. She didn't go on being afraid. So we've said, if you're investigating Christianity or a teenager, if you want to figure out what Jesus is going to mean to you, the first thing that you have to know is you have to know that he's not tame. But the second thing is that he's not terrifying either. I mean, he might be terrifying at first, but if you go on being scared to death of him, then it's some other stream that you've been drinking at and not the stream of the gospel. Because those who eat and drink from the food and the drink that Jesus offered, find eternal life. Peace and joy and satisfaction. And if you don't know that Jesus is not tame, you don't know him. If you can come to him without your knees knocking, or you're either braver or more just silly. But if you're, not, if you're terrified of him, then you don't know him either. You've not tasted and seen that he's good. And so, of course... Really, in the whole sermon, I'm playing off the famous quote from the line the witch in the wardrobe about Aslan's safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And we see this in the feeding of the 5,000. So if you look there at those verses, this, this story is unique and then it's recorded in all four Gospels. And so it must have held particular significance for the early Christians. And it goes like this. Jesus and his disciples are tired from a busy ministry schedule. They want to get away from the crowds. 
to have some time together. The text says, verse 12, they went to a desolate place, a lonely place, an out-of-the-way place. But the crowds somehow find their location and they follow them. Matthew's gospel gives even more of the details uh, that, that in this time period uh, is exactly when John, John the Baptist was beheaded and Jesus has just learned that his friend and cousin has been killed by Herod. It was a great blow to him. And so, so he thought, he, so he was wanting to withdraw from the crowds in order to be alone with his friends, to grieve and to rest and to be together because wherever he went, the crowds were always there pressing in on him. And sometimes you just need a break. And so verse 10, he withdrew apart and all the introverts said, amen. Y'all missed that. Scott, help me, please. Yeah. And that's what makes what happens in the story so remarkable. Look at what happens here in verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Listen. I know I have the spiritual gift of making you feel like you're an interruption and a big pain in the neck. I do. I have that gift. And so if I've done that to you, I'm sorry. Jesus, Jesus welcomed them. Matthew puts it, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them and he healed them. And it's beautiful. And let me ask a question. How do you respond to a bad day? What happens to you when you're under pressure? (laughs) If you're anything like me, okay, maybe I'm alone. I'm willing to bet that you're like me, though. Then you probably do this. You probably turn in on yourself. So our natural inclination in the midst of pressure and pain is to become more self-centered. So the man comes home at night and is greeted by his wife. Hi, honey. How was your day? She asks. Oh, it was horrible. Horrible, he says. But you know what? I'd love it if you would go into the bedroom and close the door and take a hot bath and prop your feet up. And I'm going to cook dinner and do the dishes and put the kids to bed. That sounds about right. Yeah? No. Hi, honey, how was your day? It was horrible. It was just horrible. I'm going to bed. Or you go to the fridge and grab an adult beverage and stare at the TV for the next five hours, whatever it might be. But we are naturally selfish, naturally curved in ourselves, and so pressure or grief or just exhaustion, what it does typically is it just makes us More so, it exacerbates our self-centeredness because it strips a person down to what they really are. You see what a person really is when they're under pressure. And Jesus is exhausted. He's grieving. He wants to be alone with his friends. And here come the crowds with all of their demands and their selfishness. This isn't their selfishness. Right, I watch this all the time at Elbert Elementary. I I mentor a kid there, and so I'm there at lunch. And I watch the, the teachers, man... If you're a teacher, lunch goes by really quick. You with me? I watch teachers go away and come back 20 minutes later, and they round the corner, and there's their class, and you can just almost watch on their face. (sighs) (laughs) Right? And they kind of make their way up because, you know, it's just come on super fast. Coming back from their short lunch break, and there's the crowd, right? And they kind of gear themselves up. But here comes the crowd, and and Jesus, there's none of that in him. What's What's he really like at his core? Jesus sees the crowd and immediately his heart explodes with compassion. Because they were sheep without a shepherd. And that word compassion means his heart went out to them. It describes the outgoing, unselfish movement towards others to meet their needs. And so when he saw the crowd, he did not cringe. He did not sigh. He did not turn in on himself at all. He saw them and compassionately moved toward them in love because that's what he's really like. And listen, that's the miracle. 
Of course, the feeding of the 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish is a miracle, but this is the miracle that made that miracle possible. And Luke is leading us to this conviction, and it's the conviction that all who truly know him, all who truly become Christians arrive at. Listen, God is not scary. He is not mean. He is not impatient with me. He is not disappointed in me. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So you're not a Christian until you know that. Deep in your bones you know that. And Jesus isn't tame by any means. Look what he does to his disciples here. Here are the crowds. It's gotten late in the day. It's time for dinner. And they say, we need to send these people away. And in verse 12 and 13, he turns to them and says, you give them something to eat. Right? Gulp. But then Foghorn Leghorn comes next, right? You know, what are we going to do now? What, what do you mean, give them something to eat? We don't, we don't have anything to feed them with. And I'm telling you, he will do that to you. Life, is, life with him is full of moments like that. Don't pack your bags, just go. Don't worry about what you'll eat or drink. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. If I, if, if, I, you know, if I come to you, Jill says, will you promise not to do anything to me? I make no promises. But he does this to teach them a lesson that though he is their Lord and has every right to command them, he is their father and he is good and he always provides and proves faithful. And if they will just turn to him in their need, he will do so. See, let's not move on to the last point without drawing out the lesson from the miracle itself. And the lesson is just this. If I could apply it for you, he gives what he commands. It's a famous line from St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, command what you will, O God, and then give what you command. And that's what we see here in these verses. You feed them. You feed them. Lord, we have five loaves and two fish. That's enough. And then he takes their insufficiency and unpreparedness and weakness and combines it with his strength to accomplish his purposes. You plant a church. Lord, we have no more than 25 people. And then he takes that 25 and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to Southwest Winter Haven. See, this is the, always the way of his working in our lives. He's generous. He will provide for you. The psalmist said, I was young and now I'm old. And yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing to many. And so much wisdom there. If the person who's always worried about their future will be full of self-concern, but the one who's experienced God's generosity and steadfast love and has come to expect it becomes a blessing. There's an outward flow of their life towards others in need. So if you're investigating Christianity, or if you're just wanting to grow in your faith, you begin with the conviction that Jesus is not tame. But you have to move beyond that to also come to believe that he is not terrifying either. And when those two things come together, when those two things come together in your heart and your imagination, you'll learn that he really is trustworthy. When he says, you may drink, you don't have to go looking for another stream. You'll realize that he is the one that you need. He is the one that you need. Because you see, if Jesus is safe, if he really is safe, if he's not, if he's tame, You shouldn't put your life in his hands. Why would you? There'd be nothing about him to inspire you, nothing to challenge you. If you can come before him with your knees knocking and and whatnot, then that's not good. What good is a savior like that before 
a vast army of your enemies. But if he's not good, then you should definitely just run away and hide from him because who knows what he'll do with you. Whatever you do, don't get near him. But if, as C.S. Lewis put it, he is not safe but good, then you can trust him. He's worth giving your life to. And here's how you can know this for sure. Here's really what this passage teaches us. I write this most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty. Certainty, Luke says. And here's how you can be certain. What Jesus does here in the feeding of his 5,000 is in keeping with both his character and his purposes. It's in keeping with his character because he has done it before. It's not a one-off event. See, it's a pattern of all of his dealings with his people from the beginning of the time, time of his dealing with his people all the way to the very end. Uh, scholars and commentators point out how this text in Luke 9 points back to God's feeding his people in their wilderness wanderings on the road from Egypt to the promised land. He gave them, if you remember, bread from heaven to satisfy their thirst. And he made water gush out of a rock to quench, to quench their thirst. And here, verse 12, in this desolate place, this wilderness, that was just an, uh, an echo of that wilderness, this wilderness where there was no food, he again gave them bread. And so the way we imagine until we approach this text is, what wilderness are you in? Where you are today, what wilderness are you in? Don't worry, there will be bread. Listen, it's not in his character to watch his people struggle and not provide for their needs. God is attentive and generous. He's a faithful father who meets our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But this miracle here is also in keeping with his purposes because it displays the very work that Jesus has come to accomplish. That just as he took bread and fish and blessed them and broke them and gave them to the people to eat, so we learn in the scriptures that Jesus himself is the bread of heaven, taken from his heavenly home to come into the world in the incarnation, blessed by his Father in his baptism, broken in his death upon the cross for our sins, and given to us, his people, in his resurrection, ascension, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. See, later in Luke's gospel, on the very eve of his crucifixion, there's another meal. But this meal is only for the twelve. And at that meal, Jesus once again took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. And this meal, this meal here in Luke 9, points to that meal in Luke 22, which points to his work on the cross, where Jesus was broken that we might be healed, where he was condemned that we might be forgiven and go free, where he was forsaken so that we might always be provided for. See, it's true. It's absolutely true. He isn't tame. You can't control him. But he's good. He died for you. His commands are life. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, come to him. Teenagers, put your faith in him. Live your life for him. What he will require of you will shake the very foundations of your life. You're right to be afraid, but don't, out of fear, turn away from him because there is no other stream. Christian, come to this table this morning. Taste and see yet again that the Lord is good because if your faith is in Christ, then what the Bible says is that he has taken hold of you. He wants to bless you. He promises to break you because he wants to give you to others. And if he gets his hands on you, That's what he'll do. That's what he'll do. If he gets his hands on you, that is what he will do. He will take you, he will bless you, he will break you, and he will give you. There's a mission. It's hard. But he's good. That's the promise.
And so let's pray together as we come to this table this morning. Holy Father, we thank you for these great stories that are ours, these, these ancient memories of the faith that have come down to us, of the time when you walked among us, when you took bread in your hands and you multiplied it and blessed it for the feeding of 5,000 people. And Lord Jesus, if that is true, then you can take whatever insufficiency and unpreparedness and need we might bring to you, and you can take it in your hands, and in your hands our weakness can be turned to strength. That our unpreparedness can be turned uh, into something that has been prepared from before the foundations of the world. That our insufficiency and need can become sufficiency for other people. That's the hope of this verse. And so, though Father, though we might begin to shake as we consider the implications of what it means to follow you, would you come... And even in these moments as we gather around this table to dine with you and to dine upon you, would you come and quiet our hearts with your love, that though it is true you're not tame, it's also true you're not terrifying, and so we should trust you and put our life in your hands. We long to do that, that we might be full of fruit that would bring glory and honor to you. And so would you quiet and subdue our hearts with your love, and even in these moments, cause us to taste and see that you are good that we might be people that willingly come and say, here I am. Send me, Lord. It's our hope and prayer, so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I know enough of the stories in this room to know that God has called many of you to hard places and to hard things. Uh, And the promise this morning is that if you will just remain faithful, if you won't walk away going in search of another stream, but if you'll look uh, the, the scary things he calls you to in the face, that you will find he truly is faithful. That on the other side of a leap of faith, he's always there to provide and to rescue and to heal. So continue to move towards him in faith, uh, anchored and bolstered with this promise, that for all those who turn to him in their need, he is there to provide with all of his sufficiency and strength. So receive the words of this benediction then. Uh, They are the promise to you as you go. He is taking you. He wants to bless you. He will break you that he might give you. And so as he gives you, go uh, leaving these words in your heart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.